Thank you, Joe. Again, a privilege to have you with us today. Thank you for leading us in corporate worship. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. And at last, I think we will finish this chapter today. Uh, I think we're going to get that far. I, this has been really edifying to me. I've read this story, the story of the woman at the well and all this stuff all my life, but I don't think until I preached through it, I'd gotten so much out of it. So we're out of that story today, but I hope you found it as edifying as I have. So John chapter 4, we're going to deal with uh, verses 43 to 54 today. So let's, let us hear now the word of the Lord is inspired by his spirit. I'm going to read 43 to the end of the chapter. After two days, he, that is Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem for at the feast. Well, they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the, winter, the, the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And he was going, as, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them, the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. May he bind it to our hearts. Let's pray and ask his blessings on our time together in this text. Father, we need your word this morning. We desperately need to hear from you, God. So I pray that I would not get in the way of your word being proclaimed with clarity, and power, and conviction. So God, work in us and do what you alone can do to convict us of sin, to cause us to hate sin more and love righteousness more. Make us like Jesus, God, and work in those who are lost here today. Make them uncomfortable in their sin, God, and help them to find their comfort at Calvary in the death and resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So, Father, build your church in us and through us today, and give us grace and strength for every challenge we face today and in the days ahead. We might face them, Lord, as I often pray, with a holy composure knowing that you are God and you are sovereign and that we are not. So, Father, work in us now for your glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, 21 years ago this morning, about right now, many of us probably remember exactly where we were. Now, I realize that there are young people in this congregation, they'll say, what's he talking about? And you weren't alive for it, but for those of us who were alive on September the 11th, 2011, it was something we will never, ever, ever forget, where we were, what we were doing, almost everything about that day. That is the day that historians now refer to as 9-11, when, when a group of Muslim extremists attacked our country through by using hijacking jet airplanes and flying them into the Twin Towers in Manhattan to the Pentagon in Washington and then another which crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So they will never forget. 3,600 people, and I think we're still trying to figure out how many people actually died that day, but 3,600 people, 3,600 Americans lost their lives that day, mostly firefighters, policemen, and those who worked in the Twin Towers in Manhattan. And the people, when they went to work that morning, there were, I'm sure there were wealthy people and poorer people and every kind of people, educated people, uneducated people, people from every kind of background. When they went to work that morning, they had no idea what was about to happen. We didn't either. I was at Southern Seminary that morning. I was an MDiv student, and I had just finished a hermeneutics class. I was going back to my office 
working on campus when this happened. I remember everything about that day. In fact, we heard a, Jake and I heard a song about this, my favorite tribute song by Alan Jackson. Where were you when the world stopped turning? And really in a very, you may think that's silly if you didn't live through it, but in, in a very real sense, if you're an American, it felt like the world stopped turning on that September day. Because we'd never seen anything like it since Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, which even I wasn't alive in those days, contrary to what some of you probably think. Our nation suffered that day. And it was not just rich people or poor people. It was not just educated or uneducated people or tall people or short people or thin people or fat people or southerners or northerners or Europeans or African Americans or it was everybody who was there and the rest of us. And the reason I begin with that because this is the 21st anniversary, I think that's appropriate. But I begin because this tells us this and, I mean, Pearl Harbor and uh, all kinds of disasters throughout history tell us that no matter who you are, no matter how much money you have or how little money you have, for that matter, no matter what family you were born into, which region of the country you were born into, whether you're black or white or Asian or Hispanic or multi-ethnic, north, south, east or west, whether you think the Green Bay Packers own the G or the Georgia Bulldogs own the G, I know this about you, you will suffer affliction. We live in a fallen world. It comes to every one of us. We will suffer adversity, the Bible calls it, or affliction. There's lots of words for it. And you may be in the middle of something today. If not, you will be, right? And, and if we're honest, we're all suffering on some level, almost always. The Bible is a book about suffering. I mean, Jesus, the suffering servant, came to die in our place. So suffering is central to the entire framework of Scripture, isn't it? The entire Christian gospel. And so it's good to think about that anniversary on this day. But what's behind that? Job 5 and 6. Job says this. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. In other words, it doesn't just come from nowhere but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. I love that verse because it just tells us that in this fallen world, suffering is one of the central features of our daily lives. Man is born to trouble. You're born to trouble. Even if you're too young to remember 9-11, you're born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As we rise in life, we will suffer. You're born to trouble. What are we to do about trouble? I've often said, I've told my wife many times, if I didn't know Jesus, I, I wouldn't want to live in this world. I would be hopeless. I don't know what I would think about the world we live in. I don't know what I'd think about 9-11. I don't know what I'd think about the school shootings. I don't know what I would think about these mass shootings. I don't know what I'd think about all the, uh, the, the genocides in the history of the world and uh, the, the, the Nazi war crimes. And I don't know. But I know Jesus and I know God, I know the Bible, I know what it says about the fall, so I have a framework for understanding this. So we come to this story this morning. This is a story about a nobleman whose son was dying. He's suffering affliction, something that we can imagine finding ourselves in this, this circumstance. We learn that not only did Jesus he, he comes to Jesus, he comes to Jesus to see uh, about this. By the end of the story, you learn not only that Jesus had healed the boy, but this man's entire family had come to faith in Jesus Christ. So in his affliction, where did he go? Well, he went to Jesus. And you say, well, well, we can just pack up and go home, right? Because that's the message. But we need to hear this, don't we? Every day, because we have so much trouble in life, we need to know, where do we go? Even as Christians, we know, where do we go? I mean, Clay, there's a reason Clay went back to Proverbs chapter 1. A lot of us in this room, we've memorized that probably, the fear of the Lord is beginning wisdom. Why did he read that? You say, I know that. Well, you need to be reminded of that. We need to fear God, right? That's the beginning of wisdom. Because as Peter put it, we're a forgetful people. He said, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. He writes this letter and says, because you're a forgetful people. To stir your mind up by way of reminder. That's why we don't go to church once a year, Right? <laughs> We come here every Sunday to be discipled by God's Word. And while we need, I'm going to argue God's Word, not just on Sunday, but every single day of our lives. So we begin in verses 43 to 45. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. 
these sort of transition verses, and we could spend a lot of time digging the minutia on that, but I don't think that's going to be profitable for us. But it takes the, the reader from the period of Christ's life spent in Samaria to the next stage of his ministry in Galilee. And they give a reason for Christ's decision to move to Galilee. Now, this could be fruitful. I'm not saying all the scripture is fruitful. I'm just saying given what we want to deal with uh, this morning, I want to deal with the, the, main, the, the second uh, point mainly this morning. But this is a section which critics of the Bible, and there are no small number of critics of the Bible, now and, of course, throughout history, nothing new. But they see an inconsistency here because Jesus, he says he has no reputation in his own hometown. And that, then he goes to Galilee and they said they're really happy to see him. It's like, what? I thought he had no reputation in his hometown. And there are books and books and books written about this, and they're glorious, and I appreciate that. But I think it comes down to this. I think he's talking about Judea here and not Galilee. I think it's really that simple. And we can dig into that later if you want to. And if you want to ask me why I think that, then we will talk about that. There's a lot of Greek involved and things like that, but I really don't think it's very difficult. I think he's talking about Judea from where his ancestor David came rather than Galilee. And I think that the context of the whole New Testament demands that. that that's one, and that is one solution. Now, that's the solution I think makes the most sense of the text. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. So there you have my answer. Like I said, we can talk about that if you want to. But I want to spend most of our time on this story. Because I think that's what as a congregation we need now, where we are in our history. But, and we need it. We needed it a year ago and two years ago and five years ago. And we need it five years from now, right? We meet here a royal officer. The court of Herod Antipas, first century ruler of Galilee, very powerful man. He was a, this official would have been well healed. He would have had a lot of means, a lot of money. Probably even highly educated. But a man of means... And he's risen to this position. I think all that would be necessary for him to rise to this position in the royal court. And this tells us kind of a point that I've made already. And I stole this from J.C. Rowell, but I think it's a good point. You know, I love to quote J.C. Rowell, but he just says it better than I ever could. And so I'm going to share a quote or two from him here. But this tells us that the rich are afflicted as well as the poor, right? All the education, all those degrees out by your name, and I mean, God's given me a few of those, but guess what? I suffer affliction we are we're going to suffer it doesn't matter who you are what kind of family you're from right you're going to you're going to be afflicted I mean no doubt this man this this member of the royal court he would have been able to use his resources to exhaust every avenue of medical healing for his son his son is sick his son is dying and I can hardly as a parent I can hardly uh, imagine a more stressful, anxiety-filled circumstance and one of my children or three of my children sitting in here in this room today and I can imagine how heartbreaking it would be to see one of them withering away and it looks like there is no hope. And so he comes to Jesus and he's not been able to find healing so far. We, again, we can only assume here that he probably has exhausted every avenue so he comes to Jesus. Ryle says this, gold and silver can lift no man beyond the reach of trouble. They may shut out debt and rags. Think of rags to riches. Think of clothing there. They may shut out debt and rags, but they cannot shut out disease and death. The higher the tree, the more it is shaken by storms. The broader its branches, the greater is its mark, which exposes it to the tempest. So really the greater the individual and the stature of the society, the greater, the more susceptible he's probably going to be to falling, right? To affliction. So it, it afflicts us. So we tend to think that the, the poor, just by their very nature, they're in, sort of intrinsically afflicted, right? But that, that's not true. The sparks fly upward. Man is born to trouble. You're born to trouble. You may face this very circumstance. I may face this very circumstance someday. I have children. I, I don't know. I've always heard that the worst nightmare is, uh, is outliving your children, and that may be, some of you may have been in that boat or may be in that boat someday. I don't know what's going to happen. We don't, do we? And so the rich and afflicted are both poor. The young and old, they face sickness and death just, I mean, the face, uh, young face death just like the old. Think about this. The first grave ever dug on earth was that of a young man, Abel, as far as we know, Right? Graveyard, the first tombstone, a young man. 
Abel. Now, we have a young church here, right? I'm by far like the oldest dude here, right? And you know I have a little bit of an attitude about that. Just shows I'm getting older. But I'm actually no more susceptible to death than some of you or all of you, really and truly. I mean, the first person ever to die was not the father, but the son, Abel, right? Raul says, he that is wise will never reckon confidently on long life. You're here today, you probably think, I'm going to live forever. When I was 18, 19, 20, 21, I was in college, I was 10 feet tall and bulletproof. I was going to live forever. I never thought about death. Really didn't. And you probably don't either, but you should. I mean, Jonathan Edwards, his resolutions, he had like 90 resolutions, and one of them was to think about death every day. He was 18 years old, and he wrote those. Think about death. He's not someone who had a death wish or some kind of a sadist, but he, he said, I'm going to think about death every day because I'm going to die. And so are you. And it could be today. You say, you're trying to frighten me? Maybe. Can't frighten someone in the kingdom? No, but, but I don't think... Uh, you know, I, I don't think we're frightened enough of, of death. He that's wise will never reckon confidently on long life. We never know what a day may bring forth. I mean, sometimes you'll get a phone call and you wonder, what is this? I got a phone call six weeks ago from my hometown, and the phone call was my niece, and she said, Your brother, Uncle Rex, my brother, he's dead. 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. I wasn't thinking about that, but he was gone. I wasn't expecting that. We never know. Now, whenever want a text message will bring, do we? We communicate by all kinds of means. Sometimes I dread answering my phone or looking at the text, you know, because I wonder, what's today? My wife says this sometimes, what is today going to bring? <laughs> you know, when we've been through a season of, or, of affliction, and you really wonder, don't you? But here's my question. Are you ready for it? When you are caught off guard, how do you respond? Are you going to freak out? I think this is what this text is going to hopefully give us some, some insurance against, kind of to comfort and help us to see, uh, learn how to respond to these things. Raul said, we never know what a day may bring forth. The strongest and fairest are often cut down and hurried away in a few hours, while the old and feeble linger on for many years. You ever been to a, you ever been to a nursing home? There are people in there 100 years old and they're in terrible health, but they are living and young people are dying so we don't know, do we? I, at my brother's funeral, I remember I could see over his tombstone. When I was at the graveside, my best friend and I did the, the service, and I, I could see in the background two young people, one under 30 and one under 20, one a teenager. I'd known all their lives. They've been, they've been gone for a long time. One was killed in a car wreck. The other one was taken out by cancer. She was 17. It's a Ledford girl. I remember, I remember her well. She's been gone a long time. I've had friends in the last five years, I've told you, I've had you pray for families who've just, one of my friends I went to high school with, he, his sister found him dead. He was 51, about five years ago, just found him. He, he was probably the best golfer in my hometown and just in tremendous shape and he was gone. This was an aneurysm. And you all know I have an aneurysm, so I mean it's, you wonder, don't you? you just never know. You've got to be ready, right? We have to be ready to meet our maker. And when you're young, I know you tend to think just, oh yeah, I've got another day. I've got next Sunday. I've got a month of Sundays. I've got, I've got years. I will live a wild life. I'll sow my wild oats and then I'll go back to Jesus when I'm older. Because I don't want to live a boring life right now. I want to have an exciting life. And I know that's not found in Jesus. And friend, if that is your thinking, that is deadly thinking. That is Satan has you right where he draws you in and says, Say, it's okay, you don't need to repent today. You've got plenty of time for that. You know? You, you do. And we don't know, do we? You so say, you're going to talk about affliction. Well, affliction has great benefits to our soul. I mean, think about it. It's possible if the nobleman's son had never been ill that he might have died in his sins. He might not have come to Jesus. Think of the circumstances. He came to Jesus because of his son's affliction. Now, we believe the doctrine of election, of course, and we know that if he's elected, he'd be, we, I know, I, I, I get that. But temporally speaking, from a human standpoint, these circumstances brought his whole family to Christ, right? And, and that's how the Lord, that's how God uses these things. I mean, he doesn't waste anything. Just like he picked up 12 baskets of, 
of loaves and fishes. I love that. Because it tells me that in my life and in your life, God wastes nothing. You may say, well, I was far from the fold of God when I was younger. I did that, but I know God has not wasted that. I spent 12, uh, 15 years almost as a newspaper journalist, and I can see how I've often thought, why didn't God just call me as a pastor when I was 18? Wouldn't I have been better off doing all those, you know, being in ministry all those years? But I see how God hasn't wasted one ounce of that at all. He doesn't waste anything in your life. And even things that you think are bad, he's not wasting it. None of it. This wasn't wasted. This is the very means which God used to bring this family, this nobleman and no doubt his son and the family to himself. Losses and crosses are far better for us. Uh, if they lead us to Christ. Psalm 119, 71. This, this almost sounds sadistic to us in a, in a 21st century uh, setting. He says, it was good for me that I was afflicted. He said, what? It was good for me that I was afflicted. He doesn't stutter. That I might learn your statutes. That I might learn your law. That I might learn your word. I, I, I was afflicted and I fled to you. And I learned the comforting, redeeming power of your word. And that's how he does it, isn't it? God's economy doesn't work like ours, right? I would never have written this gospel, right? Uh, Never. I would not have written it this way. But God did. And it was good that I was afflicted. And so this man, this nobleman, what does he do? He's afflicted and he turns to the one place and the only place where true help and true comfort and true healing and, of course, salvation can be found. He comes to see Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Well, he chides him slightly. And he says, you, you, verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And I think Jesus is saying here that his faith is kind of weak. It's kind of faulty. It needs, to, it needs sight to be a reality. It needs to see something. Let me, let me see something, God. And I think sometimes we long for those things, right? We just wish you'd say something to us. You know, to which, as a preacher, I always say, you got this. You got 66 books. <laughs> you got it. He's spoken, right? I wish you'd say something to us. He's spoken. And Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I mean, that is the world, isn't it? I mean, some Christians today, they... I'm convinced they have to see something sensational. They have to have a Super Bowl party every Sunday or else they don't believe in God or they don't believe God. Because I had a conversation with a a pastor a few years ago and it went like this. So what do you do at your church? To which I said, what do you mean what do you do? So what do you do? do? I said, well, I mean, we preach the word, the word of God verse by verse, book by book. Really? Yes, really. Isn't that boring? No, it isn't boring because God uses his word to transform his people. I think that's boring. I could never do that. How do you know God's working? Well, because the people come back every week and they walk with God. The six days in between a lot, that's how we know. So no, I want to, at our church, we have to see something. Mira used the, the illustration of the power team a few weeks ago. Well, the power team, they just see the power team, right? I want to see you do something. God, come on. But see, God is loving toward us. He meets us in that. Because what did God do? He did something, right? Even in spite of this man's weak faith, he, he did something. He showed him something here. He healed his son. And the official, he ignores Jesus' words. He doesn't debate Jesus, argue with him. But he, he pours out his heart and he says, Sir, in verse 49, come before my little child dies. Please come. You're my only hope. And in spite of his faulty faith, look what the Lord does. He heals him. And this tells us, I want to just as an aside here, this tells us that God is by no means dependent on our faith. In other words, there, there's an argument out there that says, well, he waits on your faith before he can do something. No. Because you know what? He would never do anything if you're waiting on me to do something. If you're waiting on my faith to be strong, he would never do anything. My faith is often weak. He's not dependent on me. The quality or the strength of our faith he's going to heal the man's son physically and then he's going to turn and heal the entire household spiritually he's going to meet the deepest need the true needs of their heart he's going to save them right he's going to redeem them give them new hearts Jesus is a great physician indeed how does he heal him well he heals him with his word this tells us that you know in our world we say seeing is believing I want to turn that on its head this tells us that believing 
is seeing. Turns that old adage on its head. When Jesus told Nicodemus back in John 3, what? He said a sinner must be born again before he can see the kingdom of God. In other words, you must, be, you must undergo the new birth before you're able to see and say, yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father by him, and I believe him. He, he gives, confers to you the new birth, and then and only then are you able to believe. So believing is seeing. That's what, that's what happens here, right? God must regenerate our cold, dead, depraved hearts. He must look in and say, let there be light. Robinson, live, and I live. Faith is synonymous with seeing. When the new birth comes, we see with the eyes of faith and believe in Jesus Christ, and so seeing is believing. And no doubt this man, uh, this, this official was filled with anxiety over his son's serious illness. And we talk a lot about anxiety today, and, and rightly so. There's a lot to be anxious about in the world, isn't there? If you don't know Jesus, boy, you better be super anxious. I mean, if you're a parent, they'll put yourself in his shoes. His son is gravely ill. His dad has done all he can to get him well again, but it's, it seems to me the outcome is inevitable. He will die if Jesus doesn't do something. I mean, as a father, I can't imagine a more anxious circumstance. I mean, my kids will tell you, if they're five, a minute past curfew, I'm calling them. If I hear sirens, my kids will laugh at me sometimes. I'm driving, my two older driving children, I call them. If there's a bunch of sirens, I'll call them and say, hey, where are you at? And they'll say, well, I'm at the car wash. Okay, good. They answer the phone, they answer my question, right? Because, you know, I'm a worrywart about my children. So I can imagine this man's anxiety over this. But believing in Jesus is the most effective way of setting his mind at rest. This nobleman's encounter makes this clear. I mean, John tells us after having believed in Jesus, he simply went on his way. He says, go. Jesus said, go. Your son will live. And the man believed the word of Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. It's just very matter of fact, right? He believes and he goes on his way. The anxiety has eventually or, or evidently evaporated. It's, it's evidently disappeared. Because the word used here is a, uh, the verb tense is imperfect, suggests that the nobleman believed in Jesus so implicitly that he just picked up where his work left off and, and moved on, went on about his business. He didn't rush home. I mean, his conversation with Jesus took place about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and the trip home was only about maybe four hours between here and Capernaum, where he lived. But he didn't arrive home until the next day. Comes home the next day, said, what time? He said, well, 1 o'clock. Ah, oh, I know. Now I know. I know, 1 p.m., the seventh hour, 1 in the afternoon. That's the same time I talked to Jesus. And at that instant when Jesus spoke, it was done. He was healed. So Jesus, Jesus does get, give him a sign, right? He does do something. He heals him. At the very moment, he spoke the word. I mean, the nobleman's faith was very small in the beginning, uh, it, it appears. But look at, I mean, verse 5, 53b. He says, and he himself believed in all his household. In a very short time, his faith in Jesus grew. I mean, the way the, the Father handled this is a beautiful picture of genuine faith, of saving faith. What is faith? Well, Hebrews 11, the Bible gives us a definition. One of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And I love, I love the second part. I love the way the ESV renders this. The conviction... Of things not seen. What is a conviction? This church is full of people with convictions. I know you. I love that about you. You have convictions. You have theological convictions. Some of you have political convictions. You have convictions, right? And he says, but this faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. I don't see it, but I'm convinced it's true. I'm convinced it's more true than the things I do see. That's faith. This man didn't see Jesus through the miracle, but he had an unquestioned conviction that Jesus could and would heal his son. I think this is the kind of faith the writer of Hebrews is thinking about. That gives, uh, he gives that beautiful, profound definition. Faith is the assurance, again, assurance of things hoped for. 
It's not a we hope it'll happen. He's assured it will happen because he's convinced that the things he doesn't see are more real than the things he does see. That's saving faith. That is persevering faith. It's what we all need. This is why we come here every Sunday, right, and be convinced by the Word of God and convicted by the Word of God that this is true. I mean, you think of all through Scripture, okay, heroes of faith. Think about Noah. Oh, it's Noah comes to mind. Think about God says, build a boat. You live in the desert. It's never rained. You don't even really know what rain is. I mean, not really. It's never rained. It's the middle of the desert. Build a boat. I'm going to send a rain. You're thinking, really? And so what does Noah do? Well, he builds a boat. And his neighbors, can you imagine? His neighbors are thinking, this guy's lost his mind. It's going to rain out here. It doesn't rain in the middle of the desert. And so Noah's building a boat. And we know from Scripture they made fun of him. All matters of fun. And he probably thought a time or two, he probably asked Mrs. Noah, am I crazy? I'm always asking my wife, am I crazy? And of course, she's, well, she does tell me I am crazy sometimes. And she's right. But so, am I nuts? But he did it. And what happened? Well, we know the rest of the story, don't we? God sent a flood. Wow. Years and years he built this enormous boat and God sent the flood. That's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, isn't it? And this man had the same kind of faith and God wants us to have this kind of faith in him as well. It'll change. And if you do, it will change everything. It will change how you see affliction in your life. It will see how you see life, period. How you see things like 9-11 and, and, and uh, Pearl Harbor Day. <laughs> And, and all of the things like that, the events behind it. And when your child is dying, it won't change the fact that you're heartbroken, but it'll change the way you see it. It'll change how you're comforted. I mean, I think, I mean, the official in our text today trusted Jesus just like Noah did. I think the application's obvious. If Jesus met this man's need and calmed his fears and his anxieties, when he came to Jesus, and the Lord will do the same for us. Only need to run to him. That should always be your response, to run to Jesus. When life hits the fan, do you go to Jesus? Where do you go? Do you go to your friends? You may have some wise friends, but they're not as wise as Jesus. You may have some unwise friends who will give you terrible advice. I don't know. Where do you go? Do you, go to, uh, do you, do you turn to other things, artificial things? I mean, I think we, we, this, this is clear. We go to Jesus. I mean, this man's anxiety, his fears were, were taken away. I mean, there's no doubt many of you are weighed down with great burdens today. Right now, even as I'm talking, you can think of 10 things that you're concerned about in your life and in the world. And if that's you, and it will be sometime, if it's not today, it will happen. Take them to Jesus. Go to Jesus you may be heartbroken over some circumstance in life. Maybe you received a bad medical diagnosis. Or someone you love, they've received a bad medical diagnosis. They're not going to live. Or you don't know. It doesn't look like they're going to live. What do you do? Well, you go to Jesus. That's what this man did. Go to Jesus. Take it to Jesus. Maybe you have a child whom you have raised to fear and love the Lord. You taught them the gospel all their lives, but they're living in rebellion, wandering far from the fold of God. You can't sleep at night. Take it to Jesus. Maybe your marriage is in trouble. Or you'd like to be married, but there's no prospect of that. Take it to Jesus. Go to him. Flee to him. He alone has the power to, to transform your circumstances and transform you in the midst of your circumstances and, and change the circumstances, but to comfort you. He's delighted to carry your burdens and to take all the weight of anxiety off your shoulders and place them on his own. It's why Peter can so confidently say in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, at the proper time, it may not be right now, at the proper time, very important words, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, all of them, not one accepted, not one left out, all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. If I didn't know Jesus, I'll say it again, I don't know what I would think about this world. I'm not sure what I would do to try to fix it or to get through everyday life. 
But he said, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for sinners like you and me. He cares for you. And his shoulders are wide enough to carry all your burdens. And he'll exalt you at the proper time. You say, well, I prayed yesterday and my circumstances are still the same today. At the proper time. And you say, well, what if I go to Jesus with my burdens and I don't see an answer immediately like this man did? My child dies. My life didn't change. My circumstances didn't change at all. And I'm still anxious. Does that mean Jesus is an unreliable friend? You know, we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. We sing that, don't we? But what if your circumstances don't change? You say, is Jesus an unreliable friend? No. No, that is, that is a very small understanding of reality, a small understanding of the, the theology of Scripture, of all of Scripture, of the theology of redemption, of what he says about redemption in, in all the New Testament, all the Bible. I mean, it's certain there are some answered prayers, the results of which we may not see in this life. We have to trust him as this nobleman did, even if our child is not healed. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's not an amateur. He's not, as my friend Robert Coneman always loved to say, he is not a novice. He knows what he's doing. He made the world and everything in it. I think he knows what he's doing. He's no amateur. Romans 8, 28. It's one of the most comforting passages to me in all of Scripture. I had someone say to me, well, you should just quote that to people who are suffering. Why not? Man, that's what I want to hear. For God, we know that all things God works for good are those who love and are called according to his purposes. And the literal translation is God causes all things to work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. His people, he's got this. You say, well, I don't see the results that I want to see. But he's got this. And, and there's just comfort in knowing that he's going to use this for your good and his glory. Maybe not now, it may be in eternity. But you have to trust him. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. Why he chided the, uh, the, this nobleman, isn't it? Psalm 55, 22 says essentially the same thing. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Or this is my quiet time this morning actually. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. And get this, a promise. You ready for this? Buy, write this over the door of your heart. Beloved, he will never permit the righteous to be moved. We'll read that again. That's a glorious promise. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous, that is his people, to be moved. Never. You can stand your feet planted firmly on that promise, right? He will never permit the righteous to be moved. That's you. That's me. If you're in him, if you're in Christ, that's his people. When there's yes, there's circumstances when we will not see this to be true. But it is true because it's an absolute ironclad promise made by the sovereign creator of the universe who is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. It's a promise. We can pray about our circumstances, leave them in the hands of Jesus, go about our business as this nobleman did, trusting that he will work things out in his time and his way for our good and for his glory. James Boyce said, we may have to pass through the night into the bright day of the next world before we see how our prayers are answered. Still, we are to believe and know that Jesus has heard and that he has answered. How do I know this? Well, because the Bible also tells us that Jesus intercedes for us. He ever lives right now, to, ever lived to pray for us right now. Jesus is at God's right hand, the Father's right hand, praying for you if you're in him. I take great comfort in that. That's a very practical doctrine that we don't talk about enough in church, I don't think. He's praying right now, his intercession Robert Murray McShane famously said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. You hear that? Robert Murray McShane, one of the most godly pastors who ever lived. If I, could, if I knew Jesus was in the next room praying for me, I would, I would not fear a million enemies. But he is praying for you right now, this very moment. If you're his son or daughter, he is praying for you right now. That's why you're persevering in the faith, because he's praying for you. 
We get a picture of this in uh, Peter. Good old Peter. We love Peter, right? We identify with Peter. In Luke 22, 31, 32, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. We know what that is. He's referring to Peter's three-time denial of the Lord, which is coming as he goes to Calvary on the eve of Calvary. I've asked, the Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, certainty there, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And of course he does, right? Peter becomes one of the greatest preachers the church has ever known, a bold lion for the truth of the gospel. This halting, cowarding, coward, man full of cowardice, fearful, foolish, idiotic in some ways, right? He will strengthen his brothers by preaching the gospel all over the world, in the ancient world. He's praying for you right now. You can take comfort in that right now. Even if you don't see an answer in this life, he is praying for you, beloved. Christ's word is as good as his presence, isn't it? This nobleman asked Jesus to come down to Capernaum to heal his son. He said, come, presumably to lay hands on him. We have admonitions in Scripture to lay hands on the sick, right? We have no problem with that. I'm not advocating, arguing against that, of course. But Jesus did not come to Capernaum to touch this sick young man because Jesus didn't need to touch this sick young man. He merely spoke and said, Go, your son will live. There's a promise. Your son will live. Go. Just go home. You're going to find him well. He will live. The deadly disease was gone. The boy was made whole. This is the power of God's word. I mean, it was the word that created the world and everything in it. Let there be light. And what was there? Light. It was the word in the valley of dry bones that brought resurrection life. Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Oh, dry bones, Ezekiel learned, hear the word of the Lord. And this vast army rose to its feet out of these skeletons, right? The word. It was the word that Jesus spoke. When he calmed the storm on Galilee, he said, peace, be still. And the creation, bang, obeyed its maker. It's the word Jesus spoke and he brought Lazarus out of the tomb. All he said was what? Lazarus, come out. And this stinking, rotten corpse coursed with new life. And he came out. And he had new life. It's the word that saves you when Jesus looks into your cold, dead heart, as I said earlier, and says, live, and you live. In God's economy, the gospel-centered life, believing is as good as seeing because Jesus works by his word. He concludes here, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea and Galilee. Why, why this summary statement? Isn't this just redundant? Shouldn't we just edit this out? I'm an editor, so I love to. I hate redundancy. <laughs> probably to a fault. You say, you certainly don't hate redundancy in your preaching. Well, you're probably right about that. But I think, I agree with James Boyce here that it encourages us to compare the first miracle with the second miracle, to com compare them. First, the first miracle was the turning of water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. We looked at it a few weeks ago, a few months ago. I think this bookends the story began back in 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, verse 46, where he had made the water to wine. He compares them because one is a picture of joy. The water made to wine. We're here, we're drinking, we're partying. This is great, you know. The water turned to wine, the finest wine. Joyful occasion with a sorrowful occasion. This is a sorrowful occasion when this man comes and asks Jesus to heal his son. And we see clearly that Life is, is filled with one of joy and also sorrow. There's joy in life, isn't there? Man, there's things I love. I loved it that Florida got beat by Kentucky last time. I took a lot of joy in that, I was going to tell you. <laughs> there's joy in life. And just small things like that, isn't there? There's joy in Jesus. And then there's sorrow. I think we see that life is, uh, Jesus is the answer to every human need, both in sorrow and in joy. He's needed in both circumstances, right? In sorrow, when we need healing and when in joy, when we need some new wine. He's the, he's the answer. 
in all those circumstances. He's the Savior of all men at all times and all circumstances. But here's the problem, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning, so I want you to think about this. You begin to prepare your heart for the supper. We're just going to go right into it from here, so whoever's going to serve in about two minutes, you can go to the back, and that'd be, that would be great. We're not going to pause. Here's the problem with the nobleman's son and Lazarus and others who were healed. They were still going to die. Lazarus was brought out of the ground, but you know what? Lazarus was still going to face death finally and ultimately again. And so will this man's, young man's son. But they were ready to face ultimate death in this life. Are you? Sickness and death afflict all ages at all times. They will till Jesus returns. Are you ready to face that day if it's today's your day? It's written in his book, every one of the days is ordained for you, yet as before any of them were given. Are you ready if this is your day? I mean, Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to all of our anxieties. The man here came and had a little talk with Jesus. He told him all about his troubles with no evidence whatsoever that his request had been granted. And he went away because his anxieties were gone. Friends, come to Jesus. Tell him all your troubles. Cast your burden on him because he cares for you. And you may not see the results in this life, but we can confidently know that Jesus heard and is answered, even if we don't see it until eternity. We have those promises. He's the light of the world, the Lamb of God. We know this from what we've been studying in John's gospel so far. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world for every kind of person, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, young, old, red, yellow, black, and white. He's the Savior of all kinds of people. He makes them his redeemed children are precious in his sight. Jesus speaks to you when he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be washed white as snow. He's talking to you. Jesus is speaking to you through that great verse in Isaiah. He's talking to you. He's speaking to you when he says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, heavy burdened, heavy laden. I love the old King James growing up. And I will give you rest. My guess is there's a lot of restless people here. Because sometimes I'm a restless person. But there's rest in him. When you're Weary and heavy burdened, you can come to him. In fact, you should go to him. Go to him through his word and through prayer every day. What gets me through every single day of my life is getting up at 5.30 in the morning and spending time with Jesus and praying in the word. That's it. And I won't give that up for anybody. It would take tragedy for me to give that, that time up. I've got a, something bad has got to be happening in my life. I'm going to get because I need his grace and his mercy and his promises every single day. Lisa and I will read uh, reading through a little book now in the morning before I go to work called uh, Faith Checkbook by Charles Spurgeon. It's just little two-minute meditations on a promise because, you know, we've been through uh, as a family some particularly difficult times and we need those promises. And, man, they just, boy, they just put steel in my backbone for the day. And her too and our family in a way that nothing else will because they're meditations on promises in Scripture. That's Jesus showing up in my life every single day and giving me peace and joy and comfort. That's what I mean. You hear me use the word holy composure sometimes. That's what I mean. You have a holy composure when life hits the fan. You don't freak out. Nothing ugly in Christians freaking out. I don't mean weeping when people die and things like that. I mean just completely losing and saying, why, why? I don't understand why. If you're walking with God, you just have a little talk with Jesus. Come to him. So this morning, his death and resurrection speak to us in this meal. So service, you can go to back and get ready to, to do this. His death and resurrection speak to us this morning in the elements of this meal. This meal does not do anything magical in terms of salvation, right? This is not something that saves you. This doesn't sanctify you in the sense of when I eat this bread, something happens. But it's in the reflection, in the meditation. I think Christ is spiritually present with us. The elements aren't magic, but in, in, in the elements we see and we remember and his death and resurrection speak to us in saying, I have died for you, I have risen from the dead, I have defeated sin and death. That's what this meal 
communicates to us. Who should take this meal? Well, all the redeemed. If you're a, if you're a blood-bought Christian and you're walking with God and you're not living in uh, rebellious, unrepentant sin, you've been baptized as a believer, you're welcome to take this with us. Not for perfect people. So per- people who've been made perfect by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> we're, we're given righteousness outside of us. That's the only way we're saved. It's for those people. Not perfect people. And we take this this morning in, a, in conjunction with all the Christians throughout the ages and with our brother and sister churches this morning here in, in Louisville. Faithful gospel churches. Praise God, there's lots of those now here. We're thankful for them. And when we take this, we take this in solidarity with them that we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're, 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 we're putting our faith in him and we will receive comfort from that meal this morning. Let me just turn over Psalm, one of my favorite Psalms. 112. I preached a sermon on this a couple of years ago. I think it was during COVID or after COVID. I don't remember. Let me pray first, then I'm going to read this. And you can go ahead and pass out the elements while I'm reading this. Father, we praise you for this story that this nobleman came to Christ and Christ bore his burdens, healed his son. But more than that, gave him what he really needed, which is eternal life. That's the deepest need of our hearts. God, this morning I pray that you would be with us and as we take this meal, you would nourish and strengthen us. You'd forgive us where we've sinned and failed you. And God, you prepare our hearts to take this this morning. Lord, we love you and praise you and thank you and ask you to lavish your grace upon us. Give us grace to run to Jesus. When life hits the fan, we run to Jesus. We go to him in utter confidence and knowing that he will make our path straight, that he will set our feet upon solid ground, even if we don't see it in this life. You give every person that is hearing faith to believe and faith to trust in you more every single day. Oh, how we need your grace. Oh, how we need your mercy, Father. So do this in us and nourish us as we take this meal and prepare our hearts to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one thing I want to...